found myself being very careful stepping up the steps there. As many of you know, my wife had a terrible fall about three or four weeks ago, and ever since then, both of us are like looking at everything on the ground, every curb, every step, you know. Uh, I think the worst is, uh, this has happened to me a couple of times, you're at the gas station and you got the the gas pump, you know, stuck in your car and it's got that loop in the hose right there and you want to step across it to go get the washer to do something. And that step right there, there's something about that distance that you got to really be careful at my age. Okay. We have discovered that a fall at our age is different than a fall when you're in your 20s and 30s and things like that. So that has nothing to do with our text tonight, of course, uh, which is Revelation chapter 21, looking at the topic of heaven. Uh, This is a a great topic, the topic of heaven. The subject has generated a lot of wishful thinking and fanciful ideas. People get very sentimental in their thinking about heaven. They come up with images of the way heaven is going to be. And I don't know, they, they, many tend to think of it as this place where they're all in white robes and grandma's there making her biscuits for everybody just like she was here, you know. Or they think of their loved ones watching down on them from heaven, maybe participating in their lives somehow. Some people think of their loved ones in heaven even watching over them in some way. Lost people, many lost people believe there's an eternal state of some sort, a heaven. And they tend to think that everyone is going to be there in some way except just the worst of criminals. You know, the most undesirable people don't go there. There was an example of that kind of thinking actually this past week in the news Not that a lot of you noticed it, but the lead singer and guitarist for a band named Leonard Skinnerd died this past week. A couple of you are smiling. You know what that's about. But if you know anything about that band, you also know that three of the original members of that band actually died in a plane crash back in 1971, I think it was. And the lead singer and guitarist that just died, he was in that crash but survived it. But anyway, he died... A few days ago, one of the members of the present Leonard Skinner organization, maybe a present band member, forgot who it was, made a statement, though, that this guy who died, their lead singer and guitarist, he's now reunited with his bandmates, and they're all playing their songs together, you know, now in heaven, is what he said. Now, frankly, I don't know what the spiritual state was of any of those men, I'm just using it as an example of the cultural uh, thinking, the sentimental thinking, or the wishful thinking that goes on concerning heaven. But despite all the wrong thinking about heaven, it is nonetheless an important topic. As God's people, it is right that we are preoccupied with eternity, heaven, that we're heavenly-minded. We should be that way. We should long for its joys. We should 
be loosely tied to the things of this earth. We should hold on loosely to the things of this world. Here's some verses about that. This is the way the biblical authors viewed heaven. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. The psalmist was thinking about living forever in the presence of the Lord. There's fullness of joy in that. Psalm 42, verse 2, the psalmist writes, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When am I going to come and appear before God, be in his presence? Psalm 73, verse 25, Asaph makes this great statement. Once he got his thinking right, you know, he was spiraling down into depression because he was jealous of the wicked and his life was hard. Their life seemed easy. They drove the best cars and put their kids in the best schools, you know, but he was serving the Lord faithfully and was suffering. He finally got his thinking right. And then he says this, Psalm 73, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth either. Just to be in the presence of the Lord is what he saw as his highest good. One more in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter we call the, you know, the chapter of the hall of faith, all those great examples of saints who are there, not because they're perfect, they had a lot of mistakes, but they, were, they persevered in their faith all the way to the untrusting God. And it says this in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, all these died in faith without receiving all the promises from God that they were given having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth, verse 16, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They they knew that this was not all there is. I could go on and on. In fact, Scripture refers to heaven in some way or other more than 500 times. And the book we're studying, just as a subset of that, the book of Revelation mentions heaven about 50 times itself. So we should know what Scripture says about heaven. Scripture doesn't tell us everything we want to know about heaven. And we're going to have to leave some things alone. We have to leave some tension about some things. We can't try to take a subject like heaven and, you know, put it in a box and tie it up neatly with a bow as if we've got everything little, little jot and tittle figured out. But we need to know what Scripture says about heaven. And whatever it says, we should ponder it constantly. But just to help our thinking a bit, I want you to keep in mind that the Bible actually delineates between three different heavens. For example, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, you know, when he talks about that thorn in the flesh he had, that great trial he was going through, and he prayed to God that God would take it away, and God said no, but gave him grace to deal with it. But he said that this this trial came to him to keep him humble. He needed that. Because he had had this incredible experience before that where he was taken up. Here's what it says, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. Paul writes, I know a man in Christ. He's talking about himself, but it was so amazing he didn't even want to use his name. I know this guy who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, whether alive or dead, I'm not sure of the circumstance how it happened, but that man, such a man, he's talking about himself, was caught up to the third heaven. What is that? Well, you take all the scriptures, you know, that kind of mention about heaven, and you can, you can see these three levels of heaven. There's the first heaven. That's the earth's atmosphere. The Bible refers to that as heaven sometimes. 
Genesis 1.20 in the creation account. God, uh, you know, created the birds and everything, and he said in Genesis 1.20, let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. They weren't flying to Jupiter, you know. They're, they're flying in the heavens, the first heaven. Ezekiel 38 verse 20 mentions the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beast of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth. God made all of that. That's the first heaven. It's what we see all around us, the birds. There's the second heaven. That's what we would call, oh, excuse me, about how to fall in the pulpit. Uh, that's interstellar space, as some writers put it. Interstellar space, the stars, the planets, okay, that level. Genesis 22, verse 17, I will greatly multiply your seed. He tells Abraham, remember the blessing? I'm going to multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. That's different than where the birds are. Psalm 8, verse 3, the psalmist writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, you know, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. He's amazed and worships God because of that. Isaiah 13, verse 10, talks about the stars of heaven and their constellations. And then there's the third heaven that the Bible talks about, and that's the dwelling place of God. That's kind of what we normally think of when we say heaven. So many verses. I'm trying to count them, a bunch. Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. The Lord, Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. 1 Kings 8.30 addresses God and it says, Hear, hear me from heaven, your dwelling place. Hear and forgive me. Job 22 verse 12, Is not God in the height of heaven? That's that third heaven. Psalm 14 verse 2, Yahweh has looked down from heaven, that's where he is, upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And he says there aren't any, not on their own. Daniel 2 verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Matthew 5 verse 34 says heaven is the throne of God. Acts 7 verse 55, when Stephen was being stoned to death, you know, the martyr Stephen, there was that point there, it says, where he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. He wasn't looking around where the birds are. The Spirit of God opened his heart to see the third heaven. Hebrews 9, verse 24, says something about Christ, that after he was crucified, raised from the dead, ascended back to heaven. 9, 24 of Hebrews, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. One more, it clarifies that even more, 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. So one thing we can conclude from all these verses about the third heaven is that that heaven, the dwelling place of God, is an actual place. It's not just a a state of spiritual consciousness that people somehow go to. And Jesus spoke of it that way as a place. When, you know, when he told his disciples to not be anxious and troubled in their heart about things here, he says in John 14, verse 2, in my Father's house, heaven, are many dwelling places. 
for God's people. And he says, I go there to prepare a place for you. It's a place. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend, this is looking at the future, will descend from heaven with a shout. Now, the Bible doesn't give then a precise location for heaven. It is, in one sense, a, a dimension, a realm, but it's a place. It doesn't give us the precise location of heaven. I remember many years ago, you might remember this, some of the Russian astronauts that went up, I think they call them, what, cosmonauts or something, you know, in their atheistic worldview, you know, said, we're looking up here, we don't don't see God anywhere, you know. Well, you weren't in the third heaven, you know, you were only in the second one. But it does, though it doesn't give us the location, it gives us the view from the perspective of earth and always refers to it as up. Revelation 4, verse 1, this is back in chapter 4, we saw this. John, in this vision, says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice said to John, Come up here. Remember that? It's up. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. 12, 2, that same verse about Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Here it is again. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. That's just the way it's presented in Scripture. So on one hand, though heaven is another dimension, a realm, it's still, on the other hand, an actual place far beyond the created world of what man can see on his own. It's not just an idea. It's not just a concept. It's a real place. And when believers die, they go there immediately, their souls. There is no such thing as purgatory. To somehow kind of pay for whatever sins, you know, you committed after saving faith. You know, you got to take care of those somehow. No, there is no such thing as purgatory. There's here and there's there. So the classic verse on that, you know, is the thief on the cross. When Christ was crucified with those two thieves, one of them believed. Luke 23, verse 43 43, and Jesus said to him, while hanging on the cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, another name for heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul was talking about how the physical body we groan. You remember that section where he says, you know, our bodies are like a tent, this earthly body, and, it's, and it groans, and some of us groan more than others, you know. And so he says, we prefer our heavenly bodies that we're going to have. Or he says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 eight: we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home from the Lord. There's no middle ground between those two. You're either in the body or you're with the Lord if you're a believer. Okay. So for believers, that's where we go. Our souls go to the presence of the Lord, heaven the third heaven. The question comes up, you know, because the Bible says there's coming this day as we get to the end of the world, which is what we've been studying in the book of Revelation, the last seven years before the Lord comes back again when judgment is going to be poured out on the earth and God's wrath will vindicate his justice and his holiness and judging this earth and all sinners who have rejected him are alive at that time. The rapture occurs, according to 1 Thessalonians, at some point, as you know. The question 
We'll see this in 1 Thessalonians when we get there, chapter 4. For believers alive at that rapture, they will also be transported to heaven immediately. Again, no middle ground. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, that's where you find that. I'm not going to teach on tonight because we're only in chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians. You're going to have to wait. Everybody's asking, when's the rapture? When's the rapture? When's the rapture? First, I can read your mind, see. It's written all over you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's not the second coming of the Lord to earth. The second coming he comes to earth. This is something else. We meet him in, with, in the air, so we will always be with the Lord then from that point on. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, if we're alive, will be changed. So it, no matter, for believers, no matter whether we die first or we're living at the time of the rapture and taken up, still, heaven is what we look forward to. But here's the main point of tonight's study of Revelation 21. Are you sitting down? The present place of heaven, where believers who have died have gone, is not the final place of heaven. This is a glorious chapter, Revelation chapter 21, because we find here the culmination of God's eternal kingdom plan. That's where we've arrived. I've got a slide back there, by the way, and I'm going to point at you in just a second. I, I didn't actually put in my notes where I want you to show that, but it'll, it'll hit me, you know. We're getting close, I think. This is a glorious chapter, the culmination of God's redemptive history. This is what all, what we're looking at tonight is what all of Revelation has been moving toward, a, a finale a final act, the culmination of it all. But it's not just revelation that moves toward this. All of Scripture builds toward this culmination that we're looking at in this chapter tonight. Or to say it differently, all Scripture moves toward the final goal of history. So with Revelation chapter 21 and 22, that's what we've arrived at. The vision given to the Apostle John of this culmination, this goal. It just hit me. This is where the slide should be. You probably heard that. Something hit me there. All right. This is going to remind you, this, is a, this was a, an outline of the entire book that we gave early on. But now that we're toward the end, let's look at it again. This is what we've, we've studied so far. Part one, part two, part three. Three parts to Revelation. Part one was the initial vision. And there's this verse, you know, where... John is told, write down what you've seen, what's now, and what's to take place later, what's to come. You can divide the, revelation, the book of Revelation that way. And so the vision in chapter 1, that's what John saw in that vision, the incredible vision on the Isle of Patmos in that cave there when he was exiled to Patmos, this deserted island at that time. And uh, God gave him this vision of Christ, the glorified 
amazing glorified Christ. That's chapter one. Chapter two then, two and three, it's what's now. It's, it's, it's the church age that we're in. And those are seven churches that we looked at that are examples of, of all churches of all times throughout the church age. And then we got to chapter four all the way to the end of the book. That's the third section. It's the future from then on. What's going to take place later. And that was broken down to the first uh, couple of chapters there, chapters 4 and 5. It was Jesus glorified in heaven and the worship, the adoration of Jesus. And then chapter 6 all the way through 18, the record of all the judgments, all the wrath of God being poured out on the earth in the future. When, when Christ, the risen Lord, opens the seals of judgment and they all are poured out, the wrath of God. Chapter 19 was the second coming, finally when Jesus returns, not to the air, but to the earth. And then chapter 20 was broken down to those two major sections. There was the the millennial kingdom, the heaven on earth, in the sense of, of Christ fulfilling some promises to the nation of Israel, some promises that still have not been fulfilled for a thousand years, millennial reign, that concludes with Satan having one last run at things, but... Christ defeats all of his enemies finally, and you have the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers are judged and cast into hell for eternity. And then chapter 21 and 22, the eternal state, the new heaven and earth, the culmination of redemptive history, the goal that everything's been moving toward, but more specifically, what is the goal? Well, to answer this, we need to actually go back to creation. God created a perfect universe, the book of Genesis, innocent people, Adam and Eve, placed into that universe, but those people, though they were innocent, they were not unable to sin. They were able to sin, and they chose to disobey God's commands. And that sin is called the fall because it plunged the entire human race into sin. From that moment on, every person born is born with a sin nature to go their own way, to think their own thoughts, to define God the way they want to, to reject God, whatever. The fall. And as a result of that fall, God placed a curse upon them and a curse upon the rest of creation as well. God was not the cause of the sin, and yet that was still a part of God's sovereign plan. So what we find in Scripture, the rest of Scripture, ever since the fall, is God's ongoing eternal plan to restore His creation through His Son. Now, another way to look at this is to consider even what God had commanded man to do in the garden. Let's look at the failure that way and what God is going to do in restoring everything. In Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, it says that God created man in his own image, in God's image, male and female. He created them. There is no other. And God blessed them. And God said to them, gave gave them directions, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over it. That was the command. There was a stewardship given to the first people, to as a couple, 
serving God, by, by ruling over his creation in his behalf, his agents. And man sinned, which means he failed in the stewardship God gave him, the role of ruling over creation, the role of subduing creation. So what God is going to do then in the future, to look at it that way, is perfectly accomplish what man failed to do. Ruling perfectly over the creation, subduing all things. This idea of God reaching his goal, the culmination of all things, his goal for history, even connects to the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples when he was teaching them how to pray. Matthew 6, verse 10. Remember that one line? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, that's going to happen. There is coming in the future the fulfillment of that as a perfect reality when God's kingdom and God's will are perfectly and eternally accomplished here. So this is what we're now studying in Revelation 21. Now you could therefore say that when the events of Revelation 21 actually do happen, it's in the future, you could, you could even say it this way as a summary thought. At that moment, at that time, God's verdict on everything will be mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. It'll be the time for the transition from Messiah's mediatorial millennial reign that we study in chapter 20 to the eternal kingdom, which is the goal of history. The millennial kingdom transitioning, merging into the Father's eternal kingdom. And then, in a way that's hard for us to fathom, if you look ahead to Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, hard for us to fathom this. Again, we can't tie everything in a nice little box. Revelation 22, verse 3, both the Father and the Son are going to be on the throne. There will no longer be any curse pronounced upon the universe. And the throne of God and of the Lamb, Christ, will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. So this is about God accomplishing his goal for history, what he's moving everything towards, regardless of what the world thinks. The world's blind to this. Moving everything to the culmination of all things, you can even call that this is the full restoration of all things. There's another way to say it. A restoration of all things. I mean, think about it. Man, human beings, will finally be in a proper relationship with our Creator. There's part of the restoration. Man is going to be in complete fellowship and harmony with other human beings at that point. Perfect restoration there. Man's relationship even with the entire creation is going to be restored. It's necessary for all three of those relationships to be restored because at the fall, all three were messed up. All three were marred. So at this future point in God's plan, the eternal state, the new heaven and earth, all three will be completed in the final and eternal heaven. So we're only going to begin our study of Revelation 21 tonight and some facts about this final and eternal heaven. Tonight, this is shocking, only verses 1 and 2. 
I tried. I really tried. It's just there's a lot here. Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Let me read it. John the Apostle, with this vision, the next stage, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So we'll we'll at least get three facts tonight. We'll look at a couple more next time. Here's one fact about this future and eternal heaven that we discover in these verses. Fact number one, and I, I didn't have a really good fancy way of wording them. They're pretty utilitarian and pedantic, but here's number one. It will arrive after the millennium, okay? There's point number one. There's a fact. It will arrive after the millennium. As chapter 21 opens here, what's happening follows chapter 20. That's profound, isn't it? At the end of chapter 20, verses 10 through 15, I'm not going to read all that, but if you glance back to that, Kevin taught all of that so effectively. How did chapter 20 end? All the sinners of all ages, this is in the future, all sinners, all those who've rejected the truth of Scripture, all those who are living their own way, all those who have turned their their backs on God and what he says, all sinners of all ages from the very beginning of human history who have not come in faith, in saving faith to have their sin forgiven, All sinners of all ages, as well as Satan and all his demons, we saw, have been sentenced right at the end of chapter 20, which is after the millennium. It's the judgment of the the great throne of God, the great white throne judgment. All have been cast into the lake of fire. And once that happens, the eternal state then begins for all those who are God's true people, which is the scene here in verse 1. Look at it again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That term translated then, it's just a little you know, window into our, her- our approach to hermeneutics. We take these words seriously to try to interpret Scripture. That word's important then. You might have a translation that says and. The Greek word could be translated either way. Then. That confirms that the events of chapter 20 are followed by what John saw next, or else it wouldn't word it that way. The new heaven and the new earth will appear chronologically following the millennium and the great white throne judgment. Something else adds to that confirmation is the little phrase, I saw. That phrase adds to the confirmation of the chronology here. That verbal phrase is found throughout Revelation. We've seen it many times to indicate, it's always used to indicate chronological progression. It's in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 19, and 20. Several times. Here's just a couple of samples. Revelation 6, verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals and the judgment started being poured out. Then I saw. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. That same phrase I saw that has introduced each of the climactic events beginning with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ all on the way 
even before that, all through Revelation, but now from the return of Christ onward, it's that word right here. Look back at chapter 19, verse 11 real quick, by the way, just the return of the Lord. It's used about that. Revelation 19, 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. The return of Christ to this earth. In the vision, he says, I saw that. So the point is that this culmination that I've introduced here tonight is clearly still future, and it clearly occurs after the events of chapters 19 and 20. You take any other approach to those and all that terminology, and you're playing gymnastics with the language, trying to make some system of theology fit. That's point number one. It'll happen after the millennium. Here's a fact, number one, number two. It will be different in form. It will be different in form. Notice the words again, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That term new is the Greek term kainos. There's a different term for new as well, but kainos means new in a qualitative sense. What makes it up is new, fresh. So the future heaven and earth will not merely succeed the present universe in chronological sequence. They each will be something brand new. That means that the place of heaven that exists now, as I said before, is not the final heaven in which we will spend eternity. What is called heaven now, you could even say, is an intermediate state of heaven. Real, glorious, but not the final. By the way, this also confirms that the millennium of Revelation 20 is not even the final existence of God's people. It's an important aspect of God's plan, fulfilling his promises. No, the final existence is the future and new eternal state that's now being described in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So what John saw, and thus what he describes here, is a real universe, a new universe, where God's people will dwell forever. It's not presenting just some spiritual realities, ethereal realities, a new universe where God's people will dwell forever. Now that idea was prophesied to come even in the Old Testament, a new heaven, a new earth. Listen to a couple, Isaiah from Isaiah. Here's one from Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66, verse 22. The new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. So what Isaiah predicted is the future reality that John saw in his vision. But verse 1 goes on to give the reason God is going to create and must create a new heaven and a new earth. Look what it says. Verse 1 goes on to say, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Listen to how the psalmist alluded to that even, Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26. The psalmist tells God, of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands, but even they will perish. You will endure, but all of them are going to wear out like a garment, like clothing, 
you are going to change them. It's going to take like taking off old clothing and putting on some new clothing. Old, tattered, soiled clothing, something qualitatively new. Other New Testament verses speak of this. Luke 21, verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will last forever. Truth. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. The earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Now, in our verse, when it says they're going to pass away the old heaven, the first heaven, the first earth, what's now, that meaning passed away is debated by some translators. The dilemma is, does it refer to taking what's here and just renewing it, you know, remodeling it? Flipping it. Or is it the creation of something new? Is it purification or annihilation? And people give reasons on both sides of that argument, but the idea of creation, not remodeling, creation of something new fits best in this context and with other passages. Like one I believe we looked at in chapter 19 or chapter 20, somewhere along the way, chapter 20, I guess, 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. Listen to this, 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 12, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. It's talking about the entire universe. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There in that one passage, you have the contrast between the new heavens and the new earth that's coming and what happens with the old, burned up, destroyed. The language of fire there is the language of fiery destruction, not fiery purification. So yes, I side on the creation side of this debate, which also fits with what we saw back in chapter 20, verse 11. Look at 20, verse 11. I remember Kevin talking about this verse. It was very thought-provoking. John says, this is right at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. That was a little glimpse into what we're looking at right now. Heaven and earth fled away, non-existent, push, gone. The entire universe, do you know that we can't even see all the universe? The entire universe, poof, gone. I mean, God created it in a word. He can certainly destroy it in a word. That language in verse 11 depicts an entire dissolving of the old, a vanishing into nothingness. So what we find now in chapter 21 is God creating a new universe in which God and his people will dwell eternally. A new creation will replace the entire universe as we know it, and it will last forever. But don't think wrongly about this. Don't 
take a step back and go, wow, I guess God's plans really got fouled up along the way. I guess his purposes failed and he had to adjust. No. The entire process is what he intended from the beginning. Yes, God originally created the earth to be suitable as mankind's permanent home. And yes, the entrance of sin and death when humans sin, and from that point on, sin has spoiled this world. Sin has devastated this world as we look around. Sin has spoiled the present creation. It's made it a place of rebellion, of alienation. Listen to Isaiah 24, verse 5. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, that's people, for they transgressed God's laws, violated his statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Sinners have turned this basically into an enemy-occupied territory. But God in his sovereignty has allowed all of that. God in his sovereignty has allowed evil to have its way in the first creation And it is also his sovereign plan, right on schedule, to make all things new in the future when it's time. Nothing will thwart it. So the point is, the old, the first, heaven and earth, is going to be destroyed. Listen, let me tell you something. I don't don't totally get anxious. I'm I'm a human being, and so you, you have to process things. And You hear all the threats of nuclear warfare now have risen up again. It's not a nuclear holocaust that's brought about by by man that's going to even do this. What about the ecology? I mean, all the the stuff about global warming and, and the terrible things we're doing to the oceans and the pollution and all that kind of stuff. Shouldn't we be concerned about that? Yeah, we should. We we ought to we ought to be people of integrity that seek to take care of this world. We're supposed to to be good citizens here. But it's not an ecological holocaust that's going to bring about the destruction of the present earth and heavens. It's not Russia or China and nuclear weapons. The destruction that's talked about in in the Bible is an act of divine judgment. It's God doing it. I remember one time I heard Pastor MacArthur make a funny comment about that. I don't remember the context. It was a Q&A somewhere. And uh, some pastors and somebody asked him about the ecology and should we take care of the planet. And, and, he, and he said, you know, we, we need to be wise and we need to be good stewards and all that kind of stuff. He, he said, but, uh, but, it, but if, you think, if you think it's bad what man is going to do to it, you ought to see what God's going to do to it someday. He's going to destroy it. And his funny conclusion was, I'll never forget this. He says, so go out and walk on some grass and shoot a deer. I'm going, I'm going to get phone calls about that, you know, and have to deal with that when I did. God's sovereign over all this, and it's a divine act of judgment. And then it's going to be replaced with a whole new order of life by a divine act of creation. And when God acts to create this new order, there's one major change that we can mention at this point. Look at verse 1. And there's no longer any sea. That's fascinating. I can't tie it in a nice little box for you. But I will remind you, John's seeing this vision of of a new earth, and he notices something. Something's missing. Because you look at the earth now, 
75% of the earth's surface is covered by water. Somewhere in there, 75 to 80%. And I have a friend who loves scuba diving, and he was, I was, well, I was concerned about scuba dying, so I don't do it, but scuba diving. And he kept chastising us who were not also into it, saying, you're missing 80% of the earth. And I was okay with that, you know. Covered with water. So in a real sense, we live in a water-based environment. But for whatever reason, that's not going to be needed in eternity future. We will exist in a completely different climatic environment. There won't be a need for the normal hydrological cycle that we have now with rains and evaporation and condensation and all that won't be needed. Now, interestingly, in chapter 22, I forgot what verse it is, but, oh, it's verse 1. We do find that there is a such thing called the river of the water of life in the future, but that river is unlike any river presently on earth. So even though the seas were created by God, the water was created by God as part of the original creation, and he called it good, as it says in Genesis 1, the new universe will not need the seas and the oceans. So when John saw it, he couldn't help but notice that. Boy, it looks different. 75% of the earth's surface looks different. Seas and oceans is what it means here, missing. Now, this is only speculation. I've read some speculative stuff here. Some say that perhaps there will still be bodies of fresh water somehow, and God's going to destroy everything, but he's going to create new aquatic life and in the fresh Lakes and rivers? I don't know. Maybe so. All I can tell you is 75% of the earth being water will no longer be the case. So we can conclude something here that believers' glorified bodies don't require, won't require water like they do now. Do you know human blood is even 90% water? Our flesh is is made up of a high percentage of water, like 65% water. Our glorified bodies will be totally different in eternity. The point, of course, is the newness of the future heaven and earth. The difference. The new heaven and new earth will be based on a completely different life principle than the present universe. One more comment about the sea being gone. Some understand that there's also a metaphorical statement being made here that the sea even represents disorder and violence and unrest that marks the present creation. So from a metaphorical perspective, some commentators have seen the absence of a sea as as another symbol of just the absence of evil. You do find verses in the Old Testament like Isaiah 57 verse 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up refuse and mud. But there's real no reason grammatically for seeing it only that way here. Instead, it's best to understand this is the actual absence of seas and oceans on the new earth. Which then is an indicator of just how new, just how different the future universe is going to be compared with the old creation. Regardless of what symbolic meanings may also be there. Here's the third fact and final one tonight. Number three, it will have a capital, capital city. It will have a capital city. Verse 2, his vision goes on. 
Remember, he, this was a vision was a long time ago, but he was seeing the future. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I mean, what a sight this was. He saw a city descending from what he understood to be heaven to this new earth. And evidently, it already existed, for it does say it will come down out of heaven, so you get its origin there, and it says it's from God, so that points to the originator of this city, and it's going to descend into the new heaven and the new earth from on high. Now, this idea of heaven being compared to a city, that's found elsewhere in Scripture. Even back in Hebrews 11, that chapter about the those who died in faith and, and their lives of faith are used as an example to teach us what faith looks like. Hebrews 11.10 says this about Abraham. He was looking for the city whose architect and builder is God. So there again, Abraham was looking for that. It's the implication that it already exists in some form. You go to Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, that great little section, I, I loved it when I preached on that several years ago, about the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And he, and he says there's a difference. The point is there's a difference between being under the law. You'll never be saved by being good and trying to obey the law. It's impossible. It's just going to end up in judgment. But instead, we've, we've come to Christ. Or as he says in verse 22 of Hebrews 12, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So even now, heaven, the present heaven, is pictured as a city, the heavenly Jerusalem. So believers who die now go to the heaven, but it's called the heavenly Jerusalem. And Jesus, that's where Jesus has gone to beforehand to prepare a place for them, for his people. I'll read it again, John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house now are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. So what we find in Revelation 21 here is that once God creates the new heaven and the new earth, this heavenly Jerusalem is going to descend into the midst of this sinless new universe. And that new Jerusalem will serve as the dwelling place for God's redeemed people for all of eternity. That's why it's going to be known as the new Jerusalem. Now look ahead for a moment to verse 10. Here's another description of the vision. John says in 21 verse 10, and, and he carried me away, this angel carried him away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. So now he's telling you the vantage point he had when he saw this a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now notice in both verses, our verse 2 and that verse 10, the quality of this new city, or the, the, the city Jerusalem, the inner and permanent quality of this new capital city of God is holiness. Both places is called the holy city. It will be a place 
the new Jerusalem where believers will dwell forever. It will be a place of perfect holiness, no sin. Now, just so you'll know, and maybe it's helpful at this point to take just a moment and review the place of Jerusalem in redemptive history. That's an important name in the Bible. And this new Jerusalem in chapter 21 is is actually sort of the third version of Jerusalem in the Bible. The first is what we find all the way through Scripture, the historic Jerusalem, the city of David, currently existing in Palestine. But did you know that in the Scriptures, even that old Jerusalem was called holy? And there it's referring to just being set apart for God. Isaiah 52, verse 1, Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Daniel 9, 24, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Remember the temptation of Jesus by Satan? Matthew 4, verse 5, it says the devil took him up into the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. After Jesus was crucified, some very unusual things happened, including Matthew 27, verse 52 and 53. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his, this is after the resurrection, rather, they entered the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. That had to be different. You look, even in Revelation, during the tribulation period, chapter 11, verse 2, it's still called that. Remember, we studied the two witnesses who will appear to spread the gospel. It says in Revelation eleven two, the two witnesses will tread underfoot the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. All of that is the, is the city, Jerusalem, more or less as we know it. And holy just means set apart. It's a city that's been, for a long time, set apart for the Lord's purposes. Interestingly, when John saw this vision, the city of Jerusalem, as he knew it, had been in ruins for about 25 years. It's been rebuilt, you know, more than once along the way. That's the first Jerusalem. The second Jerusalem is what we find in the millennial kingdom. It's the, where Christ will rule during the millennial kingdom. So this is the third, the new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem is neither one of those. It's an altogether new eternal city that will be our eternal dwelling place. And we're even told in Scripture to long for it, Hebrews 13, verse 14. Hebrews 13, 14, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. And the new Jerusalem is called holy because everyone in it is set apart for God's purposes. Everyone in it will be holy at this point. And plus, God's throne is going to be in this new Jerusalem, which is on the new earth. There's an interesting statement made back in Revelation chapter 3 in the the part about the churches. Remember the church at Philadelphia? It was a good church. And a statement was made about the Philadelphian overcomer. He, He was given a certain promise of having the name, the new Jerusalem, written on him as proof of his right to live in that city. Here's Revelation 3.12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, 
which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Sort of as a sign, a reward to those overcomers from that church that they belong in this new city. They're promised it. Let me summarize it. The new Jerusalem will be an actual city. In fact, later on, not tonight, but later on, we're actually given the dimensions of this city, how big it is. It's amazing. And as any city, it it includes relationships and activity and responsibility and life and socialization and communion and cooperation. The residents of this new Jerusalem will fellowship with one another and live together and work together in perfect harmony. There's more to heaven than just this new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem is not all of heaven, but it will be heaven's center point, heaven's capital. And it is this capital that John saw in the process of descending out of heaven from God. What a thing to see. And so we'll live there. This is where then the dwelling places that Jesus has been forming, they're going to be there in the heavenly Jerusalem on the new earth. One more thing, verse 2, the passage goes on to further describe this capital city of heaven that John saw. The apostle notes this, verse 2, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, if you look back at chapter 19, verse 7, you'll find that verb there, made ready. But it was talking about the bride's making herself ready, the bride's self-preparation. Here, it's in a passive form, which means action being taken by someone else. We're not even told the agent of the preparation. But the city is, the city comes down, it's made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. So back in 197, it's the people are the bride. Here, it's the city that's the bride. There, it's the people that are adorned. Here, it's the city that's adorned. There's two different words for bride used in these two verses, but here it is a specific word for bride. You find both terms in verse 9. Look ahead to 21 verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So let me say something about the bride here for a moment and the adornment. This is emphasizing relationship and fellowship with God. This is God being personally related, fellowshipping with his people. He loves his people for eternity like a husband loves his bride. And yet the city itself is being called the bride. And so the the city is implying all that social connotations that I mentioned to it. The residents will enjoy the role of the bride. And the city that's seen as the bride. So this bride is the future new Jerusalem that will be on earth and all the people in it. And so here's what's interesting. At this time, since it's the culmination of everything, The bride here has a broader meaning than what we see the bride meaning in the New Testament. The bride here in this future New Jerusalem is a larger group than just simply the New Testament church. It's used that way in the New Testament. As husbands, Ephesians 5, it tells husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves his church, his bride, and gives himself up for her. But here it's referred to all the people of God for all eternity. Now the imagery 
It includes all the Old Testament saints who will be there. The saints of the tribulation period will be there. The saints of the millennium will be there. The New Testament church will be there. All together, the whole city occupied by all the saints of all time is now called the bride. All the saints of all time enjoying now being betrothed to the Lord forever. In this city, the Father's house called the New Jerusalem. And the idea of being adorned just means that, by the way, the adornment is where we get our word, the Greek word is where we get our our word cosmetics uh, from this word, adorned. The, The people adorned, even the city adorned, made ready, made appropriate, clothed in holiness. Chapter 21, verse 19 says the city also, the foundation stones of the city adorned. Everything properly prepared for this wedding, the consummation of the relationship that lasts forever. Now, obviously, John is understanding this through the grid of his own understanding of what Jewish weddings were like at that time. And several commentators point all this out, that there were all these stages to the relationship at that time. There was the betrothal period, kind of like our engagement now, but far more legally binding We had a betrothal. Our betrothal to the Lord is what took place in eternity past. God's pledge to his son to redeem a people, to be the bride. In the Jewish wedding, there was a stage that was the presentation. It was the actual feasting and celebration leading up to the actual ceremony. That presentation of the the bride. We studied that taking place following the rapture of the church. Believers taken up to heaven. There was this third stage that was the the ceremony that really compares to Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb. But this is the final stage that Jewish wedding had then had the consummation. This is the consummation, the eternal state, the bride adorned for her husband. It's time for the consummation, which brings us full circle to what I said at the beginning. We're studying the consummation of all redemptive history. God's people living in his presence in this new Jerusalem forever. Really, it's the same moment described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. Let me read that. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all forever. When the new heaven and new earth is created, the prophecy of that verse will come to pass, the consummation of all things, the completion of the goal of history. Do you know it's right to view this then sort of as the uh, what we're reading about in the future as the end? But in another sense, what is it? It's a beginning. This is the start of a whole new world inhabited only by those who are his true people who will live there forever, and they will be completely holy, existing in this new world totally and permanently free from sin. There's more to say about heaven and the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem that's coming up in the chapter, but just take what we've, we've seen so far. What a contrast this is to how chapter 20 ended, the lake of fire, eternal judgment for those who reject the truth. 
The contrast to that is God's people living in perfect bliss for all eternity. Here is another reminder. These contrasting scenes confirm the reality there, there are only two possible eternal destinies. There's no other choice. Only these two. Those who have had their sins forgiven, who express saving faith in the Lord, they, they trust in the Lord instead of themselves, are forgiven of their sin, they'll be here. And all those who don't, do not, will be in judgment forever. What a contrast. This is so glorious that we ought to think about heaven then. We ought to long for it. We ought to talk about it. We ought to sing songs about it. It's sad that a lot of that has fallen by the wayside for many in today's church. I think we just so easily are caught up in life as it is now and what this world is. We hold on to it so tightly that we become more and more worldly and less heavenly minded. But the Bible makes it clear that we're to ponder all this. We're to long for it. Listen to how Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says it. If you've been raised up with Christ, if you've been saved, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. We think about heaven as it is now. as part of being heavenly minded. We ponder what heaven's going to be like in eternity, the new heaven and the new earth, and this new heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, its capital. We'll be living in that city. We ponder whatever we can, whatever Scripture has revealed to us. It hasn't told us everything. But what it does tell us is amazing. We're amazed because we do at least know this. We can ponder it because the triune God is there. All the fellow believers that have existed throughout history are there. The apostles, the the patriarchs that were saved, people. The, The book of life that records our names. We're citizens there, Philippians 3 tells us. That's where our citizenship is. 1 Peter 1 says our inheritance there, our eternal inheritance is there. Matthew 5, our reward is there. Matthew 19, our treasure is there. We need to ponder at least those truths and set our mind on those things, remembering all along the way then the reality of where we are now. We are strangers in this world. We are exiles in this world. We are pilgrims on this earth. Life here was never meant to fulfill us. And yet people are spending all their energy, all their time on their focus to get as much out of this world and this life they possibly can. And that's a sign that this is all they have. It won't get any better for them than this. But for believers, we're sojourners on the earth, aliens and strangers, and we set our minds on heaven because everything of lasting importance to us is there. Let's ask the Lord to help us do that. Father, you've revealed the aspects of heaven that you want us to know. And obviously, you know so much more. You know every detail. You know the answer to everyone's questions as we try to somehow wrap our minds around the fact that the New Jerusalem, the city, is not all of heaven, but it's the center point of it. 
There's more to heaven than that. There's a new earth that's different than the earth now, a whole new universe. Lord, we, we trust that what you've revealed to us is enough. So, Lord, help us to ponder what we know to be true. Help us to set our minds, if we know Christ, help us to set our minds on heavenly things every day, knowing that the more heavenly-minded we are, the more earthly good we will actually be here. And, Lord, I pray for anyone here has, who can't really say that, yes, I'm going to heaven because I've trusted Christ, I believe the truth, I've embraced the gospel, I, I, I've been forgiven of my sin, I've acknowledged my sinfulness, that there's nothing here on this earth that's worth living for ultimately. But it's only Christ, that all I have is really Christ. My greatest good is Christ and the truth, the gospel. Lord, if there's anyone here that can't say that, I pray that you would open their hearts to see the terrible destiny that they're headed for someday. And may you put within their hearts a desire to know the truth. Put the humility there that's necessary to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me and set me on a new path that leads to heaven. Strengthen us each day as we get mired down in the responsibilities that we have here to think about heaven, to ponder the new Jerusalem and life in your presence without sin forever. In Christ's name, amen.